This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and iRise for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IDEA Conference. To be good UX professionals, we need to crack open some Psych 101 textbooks, learn what motivates people, and then bake these ideas into our designs. Product strategy and design consultant Stephen P. Anderson looks at specific examples of sites who've designed serendipity, arousal, rewards, and other seductive elements into their applications, especially during the post-sign-up process, when it is so easy to lose people. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. All right, so I get the coveted last day of the, you know, the day spot, so I will... Good news is it's lots of stories that I have to tell you, stories that show good experiences, and I'll be peeling back the layers and what made those good experiences. Um, I do have to comment, despite the very suggestive slide, uh, this presentation has been approved for all audiences. Um, now you're all leaving. I the, uh, also have one other comment at the very end of the presentation, assuming you all stick around, make it to the end, there's a gift for everyone here that relates to what I'll be talking about. If, for reasons uh, beyond your control, you have to leave, there is a box at the back, and just feel free to grab one of the, uh, the gift items at the back of the box. But it won't make sense unless you make it through all the presentation, but you, know, you can take it with you and enjoy. I want you to take that away with you anyway. Okay, so I'm Stephen Anderson. Um, I do a lot of product strategy and design consulting. I'm based out of Dallas, Texas, and we'll get the obligatory stuff out of the way. I'm at Stephen Anderson. I am not at Poet Painter. I'm at Stephen Anderson on Twitter. And let's dive into the presentation. So I call it the art and science of seductive interactions, but I have to tell you, I am a designer. That's my background. Um, but over the last decade, as I've uh, grown and matured as a designer, I found myself increasingly going back to psychology, to social science, to friends who run in the cognitive science circles and uh, cognitive psychology, things like that. And I've become increasingly curious about just humans and brains and how we make decisions and, and uh, choice and things like that. And so just to kind of set the tone for what this presentation is about, I want to bring up an example that I bet most, if not all of you, are familiar with. And this is uh, from LinkedIn. And how many of you were on LinkedIn back in 2004, like way back in the day? Okay, a good number of you. How many of you were on LinkedIn before they implemented this feature? All right, so you, many of you remember this. So if you're like me, you signed up with LinkedIn, you probably had a profile that we didn't even think in these terms at this time, but it was like 20% complete, right? Maybe you had the basic stuff to get, get on LinkedIn, but that was it. And then one day you log in, and it says, oh, profile completeness, you're only 20%, or you're only 40%. And you'll notice it did something interesting. It said, just do this one little thing, and you can be more complete, right? Or we'll bring you to a, a greater percentage. So you do that one thing, add another position, or adding a summary, or adding education, or whatever it is, and pretty soon, your profile is 100% complete. So how many 100% complete profiles do we have in the audience here? Okay, quite a few. Um, I've spoken to folks at LinkedIn. Yes, this was a very powerful little feature they dropped in. But here's the interesting thing. When you ask the question, why did this work? It wasn't great IA. It wasn't great uh, a technical achievement. It wasn't difficult to build. It wasn't, relatively speaking, it wasn't a great graphic design achievement. Uh, the reason this worked was because psychology. And what it tapped into were things like levels and challenges. So levels in this case were the percentage complete, and the challenge was that one thing you have to do to get to the next level. And this is not at all unlike you know, karate belts or games or other things we play. So that's kind of the, the uh, background or the backdrop for this presentation. Now, this is not all about cues from psychology and things that we can apply to design. This is actually very specific and very focused. Uh, what I want to talk about today is this scenario. So imagine you have, or hopefully it's not imagining, you have a great product. Um, it does fine in usability testing. There are no obvious problems that you're aware of. But maybe you've experienced some of these. There's a high bounce rate. People come, but they don't come back. 
there's a low adoption. People you know, sign up for it, but they just don't use it. Um, maybe it's an enterprise app, so you have some hostage, a hostage audience, but they're just not using it. Uh, maybe it's a crowded space, like on a startup, and you're doing something a lot of people join, project management, uh, to-do list, things like that. And the thing that makes your product unique is, is hard to get at first unless you really start using it. So your value prop isn't, isn't readily apparent until you really start using the site. Um, or maybe you don't have enough registered users. Maybe that's your business goal. Put another way, if the app could speak for, for you, I'm a great app if people will just get to know me. Um, so this is a problem that, that I've seen more and more with enterprise apps, with adoption, with startups, where there's so many startups. Um, how do you get people to ease into your, into your system? So that's where this presentation came from. And I used the word seduction. And I chose it because it actually it's the exact word for what I want to talk about. And if you go to Wikipedia, definition of seduction is the process of deliberately enticing a person to engage in some sort of behavior, frequently sexual in nature. We'll just leave off that last part. <laughs> but we are talking about deliberately enticing a person to engage in some sort of behavior. And to put it another way, we're talking about getting the first base. And uh, hey, there's Edward and Bella. All right. So again, to turn those business goals into a, into a different way, how do I get people to spend more than two minutes with our service? How do I stand out from the competition? How do I increase the number of registered users? And how do I increase usage and adoption? Raise your hand if these are problems that you have faced or are facing right now. OK, great. So I'm going to talk to you specifically some ideas or strategies to reel people in to get to first base with our users. So the background for this, I spent a good chunk of 2008 doing research for a music application. Actually, it's a little bit broader. It was a, a media application, but music was a big part of it. And I spent a lot of time trying out a lot of different music sites. So we all know iTunes, we all know Last.fm, but there are dozens, hundreds of other music sites out there on the web. And by the way, do we have any beta junkies in the room? You sign up for every new beta. OK, now this is, uh, I can't remember which domain name checker, name checker, something like that, where you can go and put your username, and, and run, it'll run against all the sites they have indexed. And it can tell you if, which names you have indexed, which you don't. Anyway, I tried out lots of sites. and. What I found were lots of sites where I was just like, meh. You know, I went through, and it was ho-hum. It was, it was a repeat of what I've seen before. But there were two sites that really stood out where they were so, there was something so neat or so engaging about them that I grabbed people and said, hey, you know, grab my coworkers. Come here and check this out. Or I would forward to them and then walk to their desk to make sure they had followed up on the email I sent. Uh, one of those that I want to tell you about is the site called iLike. And what I'm going to talk about specifically is the iLike experience coming through the home page. And I will say that the, my very first exposure to iLike was through a Facebook widget, I think probably a year prior. And again, it was one of those experiences that I didn't really follow up on a meh experience. But when we heard iLike coming up a lot in usability testing on this product, I decided to go back and revisit it. And I went to the home page. And what I want to walk through is that sign up and registration process and what happened during my first, what I thought would be five minutes with the site, and it turned out to be two hours. So what you're looking at right now is the home page. Pretty typical, I mean clean, but as far as login goes, has the uh, login, has the sign up page. So I clicked on sign up, and uh, they have a cl clean, nice sign up form. As you're typing in information, they have some helpful cues to tell you exactly why they're asking for this information, what they'll do with it, why they're asking for my zip code, and what they're going to do with it. Um, you go to the next page, and they have you know, some ways you can tap into Yahoo Mail or Gmail, and you can invite your other friends. I skip this, because I sign up for new apps all the time. I don't want to spam my friends. Then there was the iLike sidebar. So it's a better experience if you download, download the iLike sidebar and iTunes. You know, can monitor your music and make recommendations, do things like that. So, so far, it's a good experience, but there was nothing atypical. It was a good, clean experience. Now, there's a part when you register for music sites where it's going to ask you, what are your favorite bands, right? If you're registering for a music site, it needs to know some basic information from you. What bands do you like to listen to? What artists do you enjoy? And this is what I expected, having visited lots of music sites. I expected a form field, something like this. List your favorite bands separated by commas. Raise your hand if you've seen a form field like this before. OK. This is how, traditionally, when we want input from users, it, it's, uh, we, we execute or we, we collect that information. This is what I expected, but this is not what I got. In fact, I, this is what I got. It threw me to a page in the registration process that said, hey, tell us which artist you like. We're going to just splash them up, and you just click on the ones you like. So I was surprised, but I was like, OK, this is kind of interesting. So I looked around. OK, I like Coldplay. 
like Radiohead, I like the Beatles. All right, let's get past some of those. And you get to the bottom of the page, and it says, okay, you can go to my homepage, you'll be done with the registration, or show me more artists. And anyone want to guess what I clicked on? Show me more artists. So, in fact, I clicked show me more artists 10 times. So in the end, I was exposed to about 350 artists. I think I probably clicked on 35 or 37 bands I like. Had a fantastic time. It was, it was a very playful experience. And if we step back for a second and look at it from a business perspective, uh, you know, we always talk about user goals and business goals, and we draw the circle and talk about the sweet spot where they overlap. As a user, I had a great time clicking on bands I like. This was a lot more fun than typing in from memory the bands I listened to. I got to just click and, you know, I, I like that band. Or, oh, yeah, I remember them. Click. Bands I'd forgotten. It was a great time. Here's what's inter interesting. I like gained lots of data about my musical taste and preferences. In fact, if you compare it to other sites that I've signed up with, I might give you know, three, five, maybe seven, if I, it was a good day, bands I like. They got from me about 35 bands I like. So in this business, data is gold, and they got a lot more data, an order of magnitude more data from me. So it was a win-win from a user perspective and from a business perspective. Now, normally I might stop there. Um, actually, let me, let me pause. So why did, this, why did this work? So this is a slide pattern you'll see over and over throughout this presentation. I'm going to ask, why did this work? And for this, there's at least five principles from psychology that we can look into. One is the idea of feedback loop, the idea that our actions will modify subsequent results. And if you look at the text, they had this phrase, the more artists you rate, the better. Now, they're not explicit with that. They don't say, the more artists you rate on this page will give you better results on the next page. They don't say, you know, the more artists you rate during the whole sign-up process, you'll get better over a few weeks. They're, they're not explicit about what that is. They just suggest that, hey, the more information you give us, the better the recommendation is going to be. And so it's this idea of a feedback loop. So of course I clicked, and I'm going to see, did page two get better than page one? Did, you know, by page five, was it more bands from the, genre I was, the genres I was clicking on? You know, things like that. Was there some intelligence? So I was looking, I, I was enjoying that feedback loop. And along the same lines, I was curious. Okay, I was curious, what's going to be next? You know, what's going to be on the next page? Is it going to get better? There's visual imagery. In fact, this one is key. Uh, I want you to do a quick exercise. I want you to think about, uh, or actually, tell, count the number of appliances you have on your kitchen counter right now. Okay, stop. How did you do that? What did your brain do? You, you saw. You saw the thing, the objects, on your kitchen counter. So this is how our brains naturally think. In fact, language and text is like actually a layer upon that. And if you look at a lot of, um, if you look into neuroscience and how issues of perception and things like that, we think in images, we think in pictures. So visual imagery, they use that. In fact, from a developer's perspective, this page is nothing more than a list of 35 checkboxes, right? Band checkbox. It's just a checkbox. But instead of just the name of the band, it's been augmented with a picture of the band. So it has that visual recognition or visual imagery. There's also pattern recognition. So we are always looking for patterns and things. We can't help but look for patterns. So as, as I was getting new pages, I was trying to see where their patterns. Was it an even distribution? Was it skewing towards certain bands? Um, things like that. And then a key principle it was recognition over recall. They didn't ask me to remember from memory or recall from memory bands I like. They, they just splashed them up and said, do you recognize any of these? Do you enjoy these bands? So those are some principles that, that I took away from this. Now, I could stop there, but the experience with iLike actually went on. It was a really great experience for, for two big reasons. So that was the first big reason. Here's the second. What you're looking at here is the email that I got to you know, confirm my registration. And you know, they had the get the iLike sidebar again. They must really want me to download that. Um, they had you know, add a photo to your profile. But then they had this link that was curious, and I hadn't seen anything like this before. It said, play the iLike challenge. And that's all it said. So I'm like, OK, the I like challenge. What is that? And so I clicked. And uh, this, is, this is where that link takes you. And it's a game they've built. And you can play it any time, not just when you register. But uh, you know, as a longtime user, you can come back and play it. And uh, it's a really horrible, evil game. And I'll explain why. The way it works is they start playing a sample from a song. And they're going to give you 30 seconds of the song to listen to. And the more quickly you answer, or identify the song or the artist, 
the more points you get. So if you answer in the first three seconds, you get 10 points. If you answer, answer in the next three to six seconds, you get nine points, and so on down the line. So if it takes you, you know, a good 27 seconds to figure out the answer, um, you're getting like one point or two points. So that's basically the game. And there's two types of questions. This one is asking you, which song is this by the band Gorillaz? And there might be another one that says, which band wrote this song? And so it's kind of a fun game on, on its own. But here's what makes it really evil. Off to the side, they have this little scoreboard where they keep a tally of things. And uh, right now it shows I'm a music intern. So there's your levels right there. Uh, my total points are 152. And hey, I only need 48 more points to get to the next level, whatever that is. Uh, my best streak, and this, I'll come back to this one, my best streak has been 47 points. That means the most consecutive right answers. And of course, the moment you get a wrong answer, that resets back to zero. Uh, questions answered, correct, and uh, statistics I just don't want to go into because I've played this for quite a while. Uh, the best streak was actually the the, uh, the thing that got me, right? Because I wanted to take my streak up to, from 47 to 60 and then from 60 to 85. I was competing with myself. Can I get better than I was before? Um, they do have other things. They have social components. So you, I can go out, and this is uh, Tony A, and apparently he is a music deity. And uh, let's see, how many points behind him? Oh, I'm only 50,000 points <laughs> behind Tony A. So if I play a lot more, I can catch up with him. And I can be a musical deity as well. Um, there's another thing that's uh, interesting. Oh, yeah, let me, let me back up on that. I do have to share this bit of a personal story. Um, I had played this game for about 30 minutes. And my wife came home. She was from dance class, coming home from dance class. She was very tired. Uh, it was like 8.30, 9 at night. Uh, I don't know if you've experienced this, but sometimes our spouses have a love-hate relationship with everything we do on our iPhones or our computers. And uh, you know, she doesn't want anything to do with what I'm doing here. And I was like, no, honey, you'll really enjoy this. Come on, you got to check this out. No, I just want to go lay down and watch TV. No, no, you'll really enjoy this. So I got her to sit in front and, uh, you know, play this a few times, and uh, 45 minutes later, I was the one saying, no, no, let's go watch Lost. I want to see what, what happened in this episode. Uh, so very addictive game. We spent a total of an hour and 15 minutes playing this. I think we got up to like 700 points or something. Um, very fun. Had a great evening. This was my first encounter with iLike. It, it was a great experience overall. Um, a little more on this. This is uh, what shows up below the question. It's the answer to the previous question they asked. So think about the songs you hear on the radio, and maybe you don't know the band or you don't know the song. Well, it's going to tell you in the following question. So if it was a band you liked, it's very convenient now just to go ahead and click and, oh, yeah, I like that band or I like that song. So they're making it very easy to give them data. So if we look at our business slide again, I had a great time playing a music game, and I like gained lots of data about my musical taste preferences and, most importantly, my knowledge in certain areas. So instead of saying, do you like these genres, uh, they're learning about what I know about these genres. If, if the fact that I can't identify an R&B artist once out of 10 times, you know, if, I, if I can't do that, that says something. They're learning something. But if I nail it every time they throw up an indie artist, they're learning about my preferences, not by asking me, but just by what I know. So that's valuable data. So again, the why did this work slide. It was a sensory experience, so it integrated audio and visual and all these other things. You had points, levels, and appropriate challenges. So a lot of the game mechanics were here applied to music, applied to a game. Okay, at this point I want to pause. I want to ask a question or make a comment. Did you notice that it wasn't the usability of the system that made this great? And uh, to explain this, this is a modification of a slide that Joshua Porter pulled together. And uh, he had this in a registration presentation that he does. And uh, this, this really just crystallized everything for me. I think about usability, and then I think about psychology or motivation. Think about usability as those potholes or the, the obstacles that make it hard to do something. Psychology deals with the motivation to do something. Uh, this, you know, they had polished out a lot of the potholes, but it was really the psychology that pulled me along, that motivated me to keep playing with this, this game, essentially. And, and I, I guess my comment there is, think about sites that have had really poor usability, but the payoff was so good that you waited through it and you wanted to do that. Um, that's kind of what I've been focusing on more, is, okay, a lot of the usability things have been defined. There's patterns. We know how to smooth things out. We can look at a reference. We can see what's the pattern for registration. We can get things to where they should be. But what's still fuzzy and interesting and a really complex problem is how do we motivate people to do things? How do we inspire people to want to go further and to play? And so with that, 
I want to reveal my secret method for figuring out how to motivate people. It's very simple. Um, observation. So I want you to do a quick exercise. You can do this on your laptops or a piece of paper or your mobile device, whatever you want to do. I want you to answer this question. And I'll give you one minute to answer this. What, what do we know about people? List as many things as possible in one minute that you know about people. People are what? Or when people get together, they do X. Just list as many things you know, just being a human being on this planet Earth that you know just about people and behaviors, starting now. Okay, so this is something I want to turn into a workshop for the primary goal of being able to collect everything that you just wrote down. Um, maybe I'll do that in 2010. So anyway, let's, I want to hear a few, few responses. So yes, Dennis, some things you wrote down. Just a couple things. Procreate, defecate, smile, sleep, dream, kill, breathe, use things. All right. Just like me to put the mic on them at defecate, right? All right, those are things we do. All right. Other observations? Right. Yes, we're here. Okay. I put people are simple, complex, unpredictable, predictable, loving, hating, emotional, and machines. All right. Fantastic. And one more. Who'd you say? Yeah, the speaker. Go ahead. All right, right here. Joe. Um, Joe. Well, Joe, I think you get the most active participant award. Sorry. <laughs> it's a great conference. Uh, people are physical, mobile, tactile, cultural, driven by environment, visible. Yep. There are no invisible people that I know. Um, bound by laws of physics, human, if, even if not humane. Okay, very good. Thank you. All right, so here is my quick brainstorming list. We're curious, we're afraid of change, we seek out patterns, we like to order and organize things. I think there's a lot of us like that in this room. Uh, we're intensely self-centered, we're lazy, we're highly visual thinkers and learners, we like to be the hero of the story, we respond to our name and other first-person cues. We don't like to make choices, but we do like choice. Kind of a conundrum there. We like to be in control and we like to be guided. We find novelty and surprise interesting and so on. By the way, this is just raw brainstorming. I could do this again and end up with a totally different list. Um, I just say that because this is what showed up. Someone was live blogging this and this was the notes. This was the summation of the presentation. Um, but this is just a random observation about human, human behavior right here. Um, I want to take a few of these and just a few of the uh, what I do when I'm going out and about. This is, um, this is a photo of you know, a tip jar. And, uh, I, I concluded this in the presentation because I went out to pick up some food to bring back on a Saturday afternoon. And while I was waiting for them to prepare the food, I you know, had lots of time to think. And I was looking at that tip jar on the counter, and I was thinking, okay, I wonder you know, what causes people to put money in or put more money in. And I wonder if anyone's done a study on this. And sure enough, there's been researches in psychology circles around, uh, around the tip jar and what influences or nudges people to give more or nothing at all. In fact, if you have any friends who are bartenders, you probably know about the idea of salting the tip jar. And, uh, that, of course, means you know, putting some money in first, and that, of course, encourages people to put more in. And then there are studies where, okay, if someone puts a dollar bill in or a $5 bill or a $10 bill, how does that affect what people, people can contribute? So this is just you know, having some downtime and looking and making an observation and then saying, okay, hmm, how can I apply this back to what I do in web design? Here's another example. And uh, what's the one thing that everyone in this room now wants to do? We all want to look at the screen. Turn the screen around. I want to see what's going on. Again, this is, a, this is an example of social proof. I want to see what everyone else is looking at. So that's a, that's a small-scale example. Here's a big one back from the uh, IA Summit. How many of you were at the IA Summit this year? All right, so a few of you. Um, this is, I, I was working downstairs in the uh, lobby of the Peabody Hotel. And if you know anything about the, the Peabody, they have the ducks that uh, every, from, from about 11 to 5 every day, they're in this pond swimming around. This was about... Uh, 4.30 or 4.45 or so, and I'd been working there, and of course people started coming in, and, and pretty soon I'm like, okay, what is going on? I'd heard something about ducks before I came there, but what it is is there's, they have the ducks that swim around the pond every day at 5, they roll out the red carpet, and there's a big, a lot of pomp and circumstance, and the ducks get on the red carpet and go up the elevator and go up to their penthouse suite for the night. Um, and this is what people gather around every morning and every evening to watch. And so, of course, you know, my impulse was, what is everyone's looking at? And I have to see, too. And again, that's an example of social proof. People tend to follow the lead of similar others in uncertain situations. So here's examples of this online. Dig, the entire system of dig is based on social proof. What are other people, you know, digging right now? Seeing commotion on sites, how recent was activity? 
Um, seeing you know, things on YouTube or SlideShare, how many people have watched this? If someone has viewed this, or if this has been viewed two times and this has been viewed 2,000 times, I should probably click on the one that's been viewed 2,000 times. It's probably more interesting. So this is, this is things we do naturally. Here's another example, and I include this because I think this is a really creative example of social proof. This was the uh, Let's Fix Outlook campaign. And the entire background is dynamically generated, and about every 10 seconds it slides over so you can see more people. So there are literally thousands of people, and if you sit around here long enough, you'll eventually see everyone who's involved in this campaign. And it's, it's driven by Twitter. Um, but when, when I first saw this, I wasn't so interested in the content as much as, wow, that's a really creative way to do social proof, to show other people are getting behind this. This is an idea that other people get involved in. Okay, so let me go back to this list. And what I want to do for the remainder of the presentation is just kind of go back to that theme of seductive interactions. I want to think about that and how, those, how we encounter people and what do we do like on a first date and how some of those ideas can apply back to web design. So I'll start with the top one that I came here. We're curious. We're curious individuals. So I call this section being a tease. And uh, I want to start off with an example of uh, Hot Wheels. And I don't know if any of you have kids or boys or girls who like Hot Wheels, but uh, you're looking at, what you're looking at here is a rack full of Hot Wheels. Now, if you'll notice, there's one Hot Wheel. I'll zoom in on here. It's called the Mystery Hot Wheel. And you don't know what this is. And here's the curious thing about it. I have, I'm a father of several boys, and I've watched many dollars come out of a pocket to buy the mystery car. And they'll go, and with all these cars that are known, the one that gets their allowances is the one that's a mystery car. And, and it's a different car every time, so it's not like there's one mystery car. It's, it's different. And the kids love this. If you have $2, the kids will buy one known car and one unknown car. It just, it just happens. Again, that idea of curiosity. Uh, we're also not immune to this as adults. This is the California Pizza Kitchen. Don't open it. Thank you card. Now, this is, this is interesting. It's so very curious. You've won something when they hand this to you. There is a gift inside. It could be every, anything from a free appetizer up to like $50 you know, for, to use on your, on your, your meal. And sometimes they have bigger gifts, like $20,000 trip or things like that. But you've won something. But here's the catch. You can't open it. If you open it, it's null and void. It can only be opened when you return to California Pizza Kitchen the next time. And it's kind of based on some ideas here. If you're at California Pizza Kitchen, there's some assumption that you like it and you might want to return. And by the way, we've given you something, but you have to return to find out what it is. Does this work? It absolutely worked on me. In fact, I had this moment of angst where at the end of one meal, they gave me two of these cards. I was like, oh no, <laughs> something's going to happen where like, I will end up with one of these that won a million bucks and it'll be after the fact because I couldn't use it. Anyway. Um, so let's go back to online. And I'm going to include an example here from LinkedIn. And uh, I think LinkedIn does this really well with, they, they tease you with just a little bit of details about what you could get if you were a fully paid member. And the example I like to use is most sites, there's a registration wall. And they, you describe in general terms what people can get by registering. But you don't actually get to know what all that is until you sign up or register or fork over the cash or whatever it is. What LinkedIn's done here is they've moved that wall just a little bit, and they say, okay, we have all this specific unknown information. It's unknown to people who aren't registered. Let's tease people with a little bit of it. So now you have specific unknown information that you can tease people with. So someone at this company was looking at you. A principal in the design industry was looking at your profile. They're teasing you with bits of very personalized information. If you want to find out who was that someone or what, what the uh, person, who was the principal, you have to register. You have to find out. So this is an example of that. Here's another one. This is a very micro example. It's from Netflix. And it's the uh, rate your recent movie return. Now, the whole site, Netflix, is based on you know, this idea of ratings, recommendations. For them, data, the data that's gold is your reviews, your recommendations. So the whole site's you know, built on this. They're, they're constantly recommending. So why would they have this little microcosm where you log back in and it says, you know, rate these movies. Well, it's just another way to engage people in a very small way. So here's a movie I just returned that says, hey, rate this movie and we're going to tell you what these two things are. Now, it's interesting because visually they could just say, hey, rate some movies and we'll recommend some more, but they're actually showing you two blank screens. And so our brains see that and we're like, okay, I want to know what those are. I want, I want them to flip those over. I want them to fill those in. So there's some curiosity there. Here's another example. This is from Quantcast. And uh, Quantcast gives away a lot of really free data on a URL. And so here I've typed in the URL, and I'm getting all this data and all these great statistics about the site. Really good. But you get to the bottom, and there's this one area where it says, hey, is this your site? 
Um, if you want to see business activity, you need to get Quantify. That's their register. Now, here's what's interesting. I don't know if you can see if the, on the slide, but you can kind of see some faint hint of text behind there. And we all know that's a static image, right? There's, it's the same image that anyone else sees. But our brains look at that, and they see all this personalized data. And then we see something behind that sticker, and we want to peel it off. We want to see the data that's about my business or about the business I'm researching. So again, thinking about visual images, it's telling the brain that, hey, there's something really intriguing here. You have to find out. So there's all ways to use curiosity. In fact, I just wrote an article two weeks ago uh, about this in Johnny Holland magazine. I talked a little bit about um, Lowenstein, some of the psychology, and some different types of curiosity. So I definitely recommend going there if you want to know more about this specific topic. Okay, let's talk about playing hard to get. Okay, so this is one we're all familiar with, the private beta. And for some of us, we've become you know, numb to this idea of the private beta. Gmail used it effectively. You know, when they first launched, everyone had to be part of Gmail, but you, know, you couldn't unless you were invited. But uh, I think even, even now, private beta can still be very powerful when combined with social proof. So think about the private beta that everyone's talking about, but hey, you have to, you have to be invited. So I think right now, one that uh, would qualify would be the US release of Spotify. Anyone using Spotify or wanting to use Spotify to listen to music? Yeah, it's, it's, it's going around on, on some of the circles I run with. And uh, yeah, now I want to get on Spotify. So I'm going to write to some of my friends and say, hey, can you send me that invite? Because lots of people are talking about it. So I think the two of those you know, combined, that's a very powerful uh, combination of things. And it's not at all unlike you know, the exclusive nightclub that people have an invitation to. You have to go with someone who's been invited. It's that same type of analogy. All right, let's talk about another type of constraint we're playing hard to get, Twitter with their 140 characters. Uh, I think a big part of Twitter's success was this character limitation. And it has technical origins. You know, it's backed off of what you can do on an SMS message. Um, but I think the fact that it was 140 characters it encourages very quick, easy responses. And you know, we had blogging before, and this is really microblogging. The thing that makes it distinctive is that, that limitation. And so like for my personality, I know I compose everything. I want to think things through before I do them. 140 characters says, ah, don't worry about it. Just say it. Here's another one. This is a sign-up process. They, instead of asking you to fill out all your interests, they say, just fill out two interests. That's all we want. Just give us two. You, know, you can add more later, but just give us two. I was having lunch with some guys from Ripple yesterday. And Ripple is a, a startup that you can, you can ask peers to review your performance in just about any area. So it's open-ended, and you're getting feedback from from peers, and it's anonymous, so you know, send out 10 invitations, and people can feel free to respond back and comment. They, one of the things that came up was, how do you encourage people, particularly the people you're asking for feedback, how do you encourage them to give you feedback? Because a lot of times these people are very busy, they don't have time, and they said, well, a big part of that is when it's a very focused question, and you're only allowing people to respond with 200 characters, you actually see an increase in response. It's much easier to respond when you're only asking for a short, quick, focused response. So again, the idea of limits, encouraging, or increasing usage. All right, so here's an example I throw in, because a lot of these are retail, a lot of these are customer-facing, think consumer sites. Um, how does this work in a B2B environment or inside an organization or a company? This is a tool called Sabertown that actually grew out of, out of uh, Saber Travel Network, and uh, it's actually white-labeled now as a product called Cubeless. And what you're looking at here is someone's profile. It's been completely filled out. Now, a little background. Uh, Cubeless, the best way to understand it is think Yahoo questions and answers with a real heavy social component. And they've worked in some interesting nudges here, things that previously I'd only seen in kids' games. And I don't know why we don't see it in more grown-up applications. But there's this idea of karma. And you really don't know about karma until you go to try to take an action. So you know, I showed you before this profile, and you see his big photo and four other photos. Well, you get one photo for free, but then when you go to click to add another photo, um, it says, oh, you've got to earn 80 karma points to unlock this photo spot. This is straight from game mechanics. Now, think about the social network sites we have today and how they want you to give, the, to give them your data. They want you to upload photos. They want you to add stuff. Well, this site, it's actually saying, yeah, you know, if you want to add a photo, another photo, you need to work for it. You need to earn it. So then, of course, you go on the site, and you're like, OK, well, it's this karma thing. What do I have to do to earn it? And they're very careful to not tell you explicitly what, how you earn karma points. They'll describe in, in specific terms what types of activities you can do. So your helpfulness, your best answers. If you connect two people, you get 
points. Um, if you have a good answer, you get points. But at the end of the day, they're not telling you, do this, get five points, do this, get two. They don't want people to game it. Uh, really, what you take away from it is do, be a good citizen on our site, and you'll get good karma. Um, they do the same thing with groups. You can start three groups on your own, but the moment you want to do a fourth group, you have to have the karma to, to unlock that. So let's look at the money slide. Incredible statistics for this, for this tool. Um, by the way, previously, they had used a, a wiki, an open source wiki, and they had adopted it, and there was you know, low adoption among users. Essentially, this is the same thing. It's sharing questions and answers among coworkers. 60 to 70% of Sabre employees actively use the system each month. 60% of the questions asked are answered within one hour of posting. 90% are answered within 24 hours. There's an average of 30 page views per employee visit, which is huge. And each question posted to the community receives an average of nine answers. Those are incredible statistics. And I think it's a lot can be attributed to all these little nudges that they put in throughout the site. And there's other things I could go into if I had more time on this site. But why did this work? Well, you have reputation. You know, people can see your profile. And if you have more photos, that's an expression of your karma and what kind of good citizen you are. There's the idea of points. The karma are points. You have levels. Um, you also have limited duration. Even though it's not system enforced, the fact that if someone posts a question and you don't respond within a certain time, you'll kind of miss your window of opportunity to respond. So that's kind of a, a type of limited duration. OK. So there's a small section I added that I want to throw in. It's taking a chance. Uh, a lot of times, I think we're guilty as designers, wanting to get everything very precise, very specific. And sometimes you can actually increase behavior by making some assumptions or throwing some, you know, some wild guesses out there. So this is an example uh, from a site called Brighter Planet. And the first thing I want to comment on, Brighter Planet is they're going to help you become greener. And you see a score up there that shows your carbon footprint and things like that. But to do that, they need lots and lots of information from you. In fact, this is a form, this is one of several forms where to be useful, you have to basically answer as many of those questions as possible. That's a lot of stuff. So imagine if this was your challenge as an interaction designer. How do we get people to give us more information so we can be useful to them? Well, they've done some brilliant things here. One, you'll notice there's only one form field exposed at any one time. And there's some fancy AJAX. So the moment you hit save, boom, the next question opens. So it's really only confronting you with one question at a time. Um, and you, you start to do that for three or four things. You start to answer it. But then you notice, hey, there's something up here in the upper left-hand corner that's changing. And you'll notice that each time you answer a question, the, uh, the points are adjusting or the score is adjusting. So then you're like, OK, I want to enter some more and see what I can do with the score. And so you answer more questions, and it goes down. You answer more questions, it goes down. And what it, what it did was it gave a score based on average demographic information. So it said, OK, most people in the US, this is a US-focused app, um, the average square footage is 3,017 square feet. So we're going to default to that. And I looked at it, I'm like, OK, I only live in a house that's 3,000 square feet. Mine's more like 2,000. So you know, I fixed that right away, and boom, I saw my energy usage drop down. They said, you know, most people have you know, three people or four people live in the household. I'm like, well, I have a little bit more than that. So I you know, cranked that number up. And so they put all this default data in there, and you're encouraged to kind of fix it so you can get the correct number in. So I think, to me, that was just a brilliant way to get people to give information, to provide information. Here's, an, here's another one. And before I show it, I'm going to present you with the challenge and have you just think about this for a second. I have some friends who are building a product that will let you sync slides with video file, video recordings. So right now, this is being recorded. And I might afterwards upload this to Vimeo or YouTube. Uh, the slides, I'll upload to SlideShare. So what about an app that would sync the two? So you could watch the video and see the slides at the same time. Well, that's what they're building. And to me, one of the big challenges was, how do you actually, as a user, sync those up? That seemed like a pretty complicated UI. And uh, what I'm going to show you is their solution. And I thought it was just brilliant. It was elegant. It was simple. And it was just one of the things that blew me away. What you see on the right, and these are just random. It's, it's in alpha testing right now. What you see on the right are slides pulled from SlideShare. What you see on the left is a video from Vimeo. And what it does, very simply, is it says, OK, this is a 20-minute video. There are 40 slides in this presentation. Let's just go ahead and put markers every 30 seconds. We don't know if it's right or wrong, but let's just default to something. And then, as user, you can go back and adjust those a little bit to the left or right. It's that simple. So you just add a link, add a link, and then boom, you're in this interface. And then you can fine tune it and save it. 
brilliant solution to a, to a complicated problem. And again, it was based on, let's just assume something. Let's just assume that there was roughly equal you know, transitions, equal time spent on slides. Brilliant solution. So why does this work? Um, ownership bias. So particularly with the, uh, the brighter planet scenario, my profile is now attached to this, and it's telling me that I use that much energy. Well, wait a second. This isn't me. This isn't who I am. So you have that. Um, you have some playfulness. You can play with stuff and see the score changing instantly. You also have feedback loops. Um, you get to see things happening. So all reasons why this might be working. Okay, one last example before I close out. This is uh, friskiness, gifts, and pleasant surprises. And if you've heard Matt Jones speak, he'll talk about delighters. And the primary example I'm going to use for this next little section is Doppler, which is the application that Matt Jones and Matt Bidolf and a few other folks have built. Um, delighters are those little things thrown in that make you feel good about something. And so as I was watching Luke's presentation yesterday morning, I was like, you know what? Luke could have used you know, these bathroom man icons or other traditional things. But he had these you know, avatar critters sprinkled out throughout the whole presentation. And it just kind of made it fun. You know, it made it interesting to see the critters. And then, of course, in our brains, we wanted force of connection. So Luke is talking about this. He chose you know, a, a cute fuzzy elephant. What's, what's the significance of that critter versus another one? And you know, it, just, it just made it interesting. So I would say that's an example of a delighter. Um, so Doppler. Do we have any Doppler users in here? OK, so a few of you. So what Doppler is, is it's an application for people who travel a whole lot. In fact, it was built by Matt Bedolf, who does a lot of travel. And by a lot, I mean four to five places a month all over the world. And what he found was there were lots of missed opportunities, where he would be, say, in Toronto right now, and he wouldn't know that some of us were here. And you know, if he had known that, you know, he could have been met for dinner or something like that. So he built the app to basically scratch an edge, to solve a problem he had, which is, hey, I'm missing all these opportunities to, to meet with friends. So the entire application is built on serendipity. In fact, here's a screenshot. You're in Toronto today. Hey, and look, Chris, Lisa, and Whitney all have trips that coincide with this one. Imagine that. And uh, Kaleem and Matthew Milan are at home here. So it's telling you from your social network who else is in the same place at this time. So you can you know, meet with them or catch up with them. So they've thrown in delighters in other ways. Um, this is the idea of personal velocity. And this little icon that they, uh, they introduced, it just took off. It was huge success. And all it was was they, they picked an uh, animal from the animal kingdom that roughly correlates to how much distance you travel over a year. So this isn't like the cliche, you know, tortoise and the hare type thing. They actually did some algorithms. They said, OK, how, how fast does a duck walk? Or how, how much does it travel? OK, that's equivalent to how fast Stephen's moving in a year, spread out over time. And so you can actually see you know, on your friends, uh, Garrett is a turtle. See, I'm a, I'm a duck. Let's see, Todd is a butterfly. And let's see, we got Derek Featherstone at the top there. And, He's, he's quite fast. He's a squirrel. So it's just a fun little thing, but there was huge popular reaction to it. People saw it and like, OK, I wonder what mine's going to be. And I wonder what's after a squirrel. Or I wonder what's you know, after a duck or whatever it was. So you had the curiosity. There was another kind of delighter that they did. And this is the personal annual report. And this was something that it was just a gift that they surprised everyone with at the end of the year. Uh, they sent out an email kind of in mid-December saying, hey, we're going to give you your personal annual report travel report at the end of the year, make sure you've updated Doppler with all the travels that you did. And so of course, the first thing I did is, OK, were there any trips I didn't record in Doppler? And I went back and updated it. And sure enough, two weeks later, I get this report. And it shows me you know, a timeline of all the places I went in 2008. Uh, it shows me you know, who my trips mostly coincided with, my carbon offset, again, represented in terms of how many Hummers I, you know, I used, uh, how much time I spent at home versus on the road. It was, it was a fun gift. And I'd like to throw in this quote from Brandon Shower. He said, you know, this month, Doppler delightfully surprised me, supplying me with something I didn't know I needed. The result, I'm now a more loyal Doppler user. So again, it's this idea of gifting and giving something. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself as it worked. Um, pattern recognition, which I'll talk about in a minute with the, uh, in a little more detail. Um, playfulness, gifting. These are some of the ideas why it might work. And I've covered some of these. I want to. Uh, include one more example from Doppler. And this goes to the pattern recognition bit. Um, I had to throw in a quote from Kathy Sierra. Brains pay attention to what brains care about, not necessarily what the conscious mind cares about. And when we talk a lot about you know, choice architecture and behavioral economics and attention and perception, it has to do with what our brains do and what we process there before you know, we think about it and we have some conscious, rational thoughts about things. Um, just thinking about what does the brain find interesting, 
she has a she has a post where she goes through like 13 things. And there's the obvious things: lust, fear, dying, things like that. But then surprise, novelty, the unexpected, fun, playfulness, humor, varying visuals, and many more things. So I called out these three because I think that's what Doppler is doing a really good example of in terms of gifts and delighters and playful things. Uh, so there's this uh, there's this curious thing they don't ever talk about, but you kind of pick up on it if you use Doppler a lot, and that's the fact that the logo changes all the time. As you're clicking across, you know, the six square colors are different for everyone. So there's this kind of question that you pick up on. Okay, what, what's the reason or what's the rhyme behind, uh, behind this logo? In fact, as you go across the site, you notice the whole site is very grayscale, very minimal. And the only time they use color, it means something. There's a visual language here. And it has to do with locations and where you're at. And they've actually, they've, I think they, there's a hex number for all cities globally, and they translate that into a color value, and that's how they derive the colors. It's just one of these puzzles that they don't really call attention to, but there's some thought behind it. And when you discover it, it's that aha moment, you know, where you're like, aha, I discovered the, the pattern to the puzzle here. And it's not at all, you know, un unlike, you know, the Rubik's Cube or Bejeweled or Tetris, some of these other games where we want to find the pattern and we want to force order. Okay, so before I wrap up, I just want to throw in one quick example. This is from MailChimp, who is uh, one of our sponsors, I believe, right? And so... Uh, they have a delighter here that's thrown in. They're, they're trying to help you when you create this email. They say, you know, keep it at 600, 600 pixels. And of course, you can drag it out, and they'll start to tell you, okay, too big, ouch, stop it, my arm, you know, as you're stretching it out. And if you stretch out farther, pop. You know? um, and again, you see that, and you laugh, and we have an emotional reaction. We remember it. You know, again, a good example of a delighter. Okay, so wrapping up, the structure to all my presentations is always this. So what? Or I talk about what, this idea, and I say, so what? How does this apply to us? How can we use it? And I always end on, now what? What can you go do with this? Okay, this is all interesting. How can I actually use this? How can I apply? And there's some neat ideas that are inspiring along the way. I could stop here, but i really like to leave you with something. Um, so if you'll notice, the pattern for this entire presentation was I showed a story and said, okay, you know, that was fun. That was interesting. And then I did some reverse engineering. So, okay, hmm, why was this fun? Why did this work? I ran to psychology textbooks and sociology books and cognitive science. I said, aha, you know, I found out what this is. This is some principle. That's why it worked on me, or a combination of principles. That's been the pattern of this presentation. So what I have is, you know, I don't have nine tips. I don't have five lessons. I don't have anything like that for you. Um, but I think I have something a little bit better. You'll notice as I was going through this whole presentation, there's all these tags that fall in, all these principles I referred to. And I really didn't go into detail on a lot of those, but I just referred to them and gave a brief definition. And so you've probably got something like this in your head right now, all these cards, all these ideas that you could try and apply. And what I've been doing is, as I've been reading different texts and reading different blogs and reading different studies and things, I've been kind of keeping a list of these and putting them on index cards. And uh, just to give you an idea of where I've been going, um, it's not just social psychology. I mean, that's a big area we hear a lot about. And Joshua Porter is doing a lot in that area. Um, but it's also books on choice and decision-making and behavioral economics. So I'm reading a book, Nudge, right now, and then there's a, you know, a Predictably Irrational, you know, the Freakonomics, these other books that talk about, you know, our decisions aren't so rational. So that's, I've been looking at those. I've been looking for more of the visual type things and things that get our attention. I've been looking at cognitive science and how the brain responds to things, what gets our attention, how we perceive things. And then, of course, game mechanics, rules, leaderboards, points, all the stuff that works in games and the mechanics of games. Um, there's a great book that I'm also reading right now called, uh, I'm going to mess up the name, Name Blanks. But it's a, it's a really good book on games. Ask me later, I'll, I'll remember it. Anyway, that's where I've been going. And I mentioned I've been collecting these on index cards. And this is certainly something you could do as you're reading through all these books or as you look at Wikipedia entries and it talks about cognitive biases and things. You could create a list of these. Um, that's something I'm also doing. And... Uh, in a minute, I'll be giving everyone a sample of what I've been working on. Um, I've actually got a deck of cards I've been working on called Mental Notes. And uh, what you'll get today is a sample of the first seven of these cards. There's actually 50 I'm working on. And you can probably get an idea of what the next 12 will be from this presentation. Uh, but here's how it works. Let's say you're sitting around next time, and you've got a business goal. We want to increase registration, right? Or we want to get people to come back, increase adoption or usage or whatever. Uh, you're sitting around and you're brainstorming, how can we do that? We well, can pull out the deck and you can say, okay, um, how can we use pattern recognition to increase you know, registration? Or how can we use social proof to increase registration? And then you can sit for another 10, 15 minutes as a group. You can brainstorm 
creative ways to do that. Someone might say, well, testimonials, we'll have testimonials. Okay, that's good, but we already have those. What are some other ways? And you can brainstorm ways to apply this principle, this academic principle, this thing that we know about human behavior to very real world applications, to system design, software, to websites, and hopefully accomplish the business goal. Um, the project is in works, and kind of in the spirit of open source and conversation and recognizing that this is a lot of topics that I know very little about, uh, I am launching a wiki and kind of a, kind of a combination of a wiki and a blog that will launch in October. There's sites up there now, but the wiki part is not up yet, called Get Mental Notes. Um, and it'll be where I can hopefully collaborate with a lot of you here on the writing and the production of these. So I make sure I don't you know, embarrass myself before I go to printer with, with some of these cards. Um, so I encourage you to go there. Um, as a gift, my gift to you, um, there is a box at the back of the room. And in that box is a preview pack with seven cards in it. And I hope you enjoy that. And uh, with that, thank you very much. And we have time for some questions. Questions, questions? Let's get rid of all of these books. Um, we're going to get rid of books one way or the other. Let's see how many I can run with. First question, all the way in the back. Yeah, I'm starting up here. I'm learning. Please, go easy on me. <laughs> uh, so that was uh, fantastic stuff and something I'm really interested in, in also. Um, my question is, where do you draw the line between seductive design and evil design? <laughs> so I wrestle with that a little bit, and I... I I think that at the end, it's, again, it's a cop-out, say it's a tool, and it depends how people use it. But I mean, I think we're designing these nudges or not designing them already. So it's a matter of whether we want to be conscious about them and how we want to use them. Um, I'm designing a product right now that uh, really exciting and thrilled about. It's one about how can we help people follow through on, on promises and be more accountable and things like that. And I'm using all these nudges and using some of these to help people become better. So to me, that's a great application of it. Can you know? Can and do like you know? Do groups use this to manipulate people in the wrong way? Sure, um, that happens. But um, again, I think it goes back into you as a designer. You know, what what are you doing? How are you how are you using these? Can, and you know, can you use these for good? But yeah, certainly they could be abused. I think it's something we need to do regardless and be aware of and be using. Yeah, I just wanted to re recommend the book, Stumbling Into Happiness, sort of a, yep. be a better nudges. Uh, yep. Although the uh, title isn't that uh, indicative of the content. Yep, Stumbling on Happiness. It's, uh, I have to confess I haven't got to that one yet, but it's one I bought, I have on the shelf, and it's like, okay, another source of, of material right there. So uh, good recommendation. Okay, over here, front. I'm not running it. Uh, okay, oh, sorry. Uh, I kind of know the answer to this question already, but I kind of want to ask it anyway. How do you think this... Uh, this sort of work relates to emotional design, effective design, that sort of field of inquiry? Absolutely. So I think the more we talk about motivation, psychology, uh, emotion is a huge part of it. I mean, in fact, if you read a lot of the books on choice and decision making, you learn that you know we, we instinctively make choices from an emotional part before our reason may or may not kick in and override that. In fact, a lot of decisions, you know, they've done pricing experiments, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, the wine bottle example where um, people normally don't buy the cheap one, they don't buy the expensive one, they buy the middle one. I mean, there's there's lots of experiments, and our decisions are largely emotional, not rational. And that, and that applies to other areas as well when we talk about attention and how do we get people's attention and hold it. I mean, it's it's things that our brain finds interesting. Rationally, we may not, but, you know, the, the label on the... The uh, quant cast information, our brain saw something that gets our attention. Um, definitely those are tapping into emotional centers. Yes. Hi. Um, so these are all great ideas. Uh, a lot of innovative things are being done to kind of make this stuff happen. But in the consulting world, as you probably know, uh, a lot of uh, corporate clients are very conservative in their thinking, and you can put a lot of uh, innovative ideas in front of them that you know are going to work and make a lot of business sense, um, but they just don't buy into it. It might be just a little too far. Maybe it's too fun. They don't, they're afraid of being fun. So I'm just wondering what are some of the ways that you sell this stuff, these kinds of innovations across to your more kind of conservative clients that have worked for you? Sure. So fortunately, a lot of the clients that are coming to me now are coming because of this. So I kind of got past that problem. Uh, but when, when that has come up with, come up, I actually, uh, 
there's a, there's a question that I stole straight from Joshua Porter that I think hits the nail on the head, and that is this. What do your customers need to do to make your business successful? You know, what do your customers need to do to make your business successful? And so when people say, well, we need, you know, we need people to register, we need to stay on the side and click and view lots of things, I say, great. Will this help? Will this encourage people to do that? Well, okay, yeah, I think it would. And yeah, I can show them some studies. And so usually that helps nudge people. And I, it shifts from what is our business going to do to what do our customers need to do to make your business successful. Um, yeah, great presentation, by the way. Uh, Thank you. I've actually done uh, some of these things, like, you know, in uh, my grad school where we had to, uh, we had a psych class and they would ask us, okay, this is a psych principle. Uh, consider an information system and then like tell how you would fix a problem and often the challenge is like you know something sometimes like the psych study was completely like in a different world that they brought participants and then they did something and then like how do you actually transfer this uh, to the online system so do you have any uh, tips or uh, suggestions so that we can rightly interpret the study and bring it into our design yeah, so, so that's one area where I will say some of this is weak. I mean, I, like in some of these cases, I reached out to the businesses and said, okay, I observed this about you, um, but did it work? Give me the numbers and the stats. Uh, but there, I mean, again, it goes back to, okay, this, if this is about human behavior, and this is what I firmly believe, like we, this is about human behavior, what human behaviors can translate to other contexts. And there are other contexts where some of these will have been used up. Like, like infomercials make brilliant use of a lot of these nudges, but they also don't work on a segment of the population anymore because in that context it's, it's been worn out. But it doesn't mean that you know a limited duration or scarcity or some of these other ideas won't work in other contexts. And again, I go back to the Gmail and the private beta thing that now has been you know hackneyed and overused, but it worked you know for the first five years, encouraged people to register. But but again, that's that's not a direct answer to your question. I would say. Like in the case of the application I mentioned, just lots of testing, getting lots of feedback and seeing what works and what doesn't. And uh, uh, the two of the examples I threw in under curiosity, I've gone back to the site since and they've modified them in some ways. And so I'm curious to know what they found out from testing. And one, the Quantcast one, I have an idea why they changed it. Um, there wasn't a clear button or something like that, so I could have seen why they would do that. The, uh, the Netflix one, if anyone here from Netflix, and there's part of updating that, I'd like to know the answer to why it, it moved from you know these, this one and two thing to messages inside the one and two boxes. And so I'd just be curious to see what they found out in their research. Um, but again, I think it, if we have these studies done um, offline or real world, so to speak, then the question is, okay, is this a principle that can translate? How could I articulate it or translate it to this online context? And then let's do our own test on it and publish that. So. Last questions from Jane, owner of the cutest baby at the con conference. Hi. So um, book recommendation for the who, person who brought a baby to the conference. Uh, this, the Philosophical Baby um, is a really good book about the way babies think and what we can derive um, from the psychological research they've done about the way babies' brains are hardwired. Just uh, some oh. recommendation for you. Thank you very much. I had not heard of that one. So there, there's a little a resource. smarter than science. The Scientist in the Crib is another good one, but the Philosophical Baby it's very good. I'm reading that and child development books right now. Okay, fantastic. I, I have a resources section on the Get Mental Notes site where I'll keep a list of books and articles and things like that. Um, I'll also, for each of these principles, what I'll be doing is listing, okay, this chapter or these pages from this book talk about this one, and this, these are the studies that that book actually refers to. In fact, um, I don't know if any of you have read a lot of the behavioral economics books, but after a while, they start to all point to the exact same studies, and you're like, okay, I think I read this in the last book. Um, I had this crazy idea for a visual infographic that would show the books and then show all the studies they pointed to, so you could see you know, the similarities. But anyway, um, I will surface a lot of those in a resources section or references section on, on that site. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Make sure you get a free pack. All right, we are going to wrap things up. Show of hands, who's mentally exhausted? Yeah, no kidding. Who? Yeah, why? No, you're not mentally exhausted? You're excited? Well, you can be excited and mentally exhausted. You can be excited, too. Um, 
I want to point out a couple of things. Uh, again, I have to thank the, the many volunteers who propped me up and made this look like it was so well thought out and put together, like, uh, like we planned it and it wasn't all serendipity, and we did kind of plan it all. Um, there were a couple of serendipitous things that happened, uh, Matthew Milan being, being one of them. Thank you again, Matthew. Uh, also with Timothy Queen and who started off the day-to-day, he was another almost last-minute, maybe last half-hour sort of replacement. Um, one of the uh, one of the one of the volunteers, Abby Covert, she went home ill today early, and she um, she has propped me up quite a bit these last few weeks. But uh, the volunteers have done just a kick-ass job of making this really look easy, and and I can't thank them enough. Can't thank our sponsors enough. Uh, can't thank the the fine folks from Boxes and Arrows who showed up to podcast for us enough. Um, and, and really, truly can't thank you all enough for finding value in a conference like this to make it happen again this year and make it happen again next year. So we really, really, truly appreciate you coming out. I have one book left. It's Thomas Malaby's, who spoke yesterday. Come and get it, whoever wants it, Joan. <laughs> I got rid of a 100 books. I got rid of a 100 books in two days. You guys are readers. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks to our publisher sponsors who gave them to us, Morgan Kaufman, uh, New Writers, Peach Pit, and, of course, Rosenfeld Media. Uh, Lou, you're always a great supporter. We appreciate that, uh, as are, of course, New Writers and Morgan Kaufman. Um, Let's see. People are meeting in the lobby to arrange uh, cab shares to the airports. Um, The slides are all going to be put up on SlideShare and or Boxes and Arrows as soon as I uh, remind all the speakers to give them to us. And... Have a safe trip home. Thank you all very much. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 Idea Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual Idea Conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that would be of greatest value to you, our listeners. Thank you.